So what I like to do in the evening, uh, it's possibly, we'll see how it goes with the material I find and how it works out. But I, I thought I would share with you uh, some sutta, some very short ones. Uh, personally, my, one of my favorite texts is uh, Numerical Discourses, because actually the sutta are very short. <laughs> so you have the one, they are the shortest. So it's about numbers. So you have the sutta about ones, so it's like generally very short. Then about the twos, about the threes, about the four. And so I would just like to share with you, introduce with you some of the fun ones. And first, I'd like to, to share with you something which I found this uh, Chunda Sutta. And I thought it was so sweet that uh, I wanted to share it a little with you. I alluded to it yesterday. And what is interesting, it's a short text. And it looks at the way uh, the Buddhist monks at the time of the Buddha, or maybe a little after the time of the Buddha, looked at each other. And so obviously you had two camps. You had the meditators, and you had the people who studied the text. And then each of them, uh, in a way, disparaged each other. And what is interesting is what they said about each other. And then after that, what the Buddha or some great person said they should do. So you had uh, the study, studying one, the studying one, who disparaged the meditation one. And the way they disparaged the meditation one to say, ah, this meditator, they say all the time, I am absorbed, I am absorbed, you are absorbed, you are absorbed <laughs> in the jhanas. And so you're saying, we are absorbed, we are absorbed. But why indeed? For what purpose? How are they absorbed? And so the Buddha says, to say such a thing, to disparage the meditation monk, doesn't make shine you brightly. But then you have the meditation monk do the same thing to the studying monk. And this is what they say about them. You know, you have these monks, and they say, we are Dharma devotees, we are Dharma devotees, but I mean, you know, they are excitable, they are boisterous, they are unsteady, loose in their talk, muddied in their mindfulness. So, but why indeed are they Dharma devotees? For what purpose? How are they Dharma devotees? And so each group only prays themselves. But in fact, what the text says, you should praise each other. Because people who are meditating are amazing because they really get to get in touch with non-grasping, with emptiness. And the people who study are amazing people who penetrate with discernment statements of deep meaning. So I think what is this telling us now? I think to be careful that we have a tendency to characterize ourselves or others. For example, I am a meditator, I must always be equanimous. You are uh, studying, you must know everything or you should behave properly. And sometimes you have Buddhist, one I like, you know, I used to live in a Buddhist community many years ago, and one of the insults uh, to each other was, you are not mindful. <laughs> or you are not compassionate. So it's kind of, in a way, using the teaching to kind of accuse each other, disparage each other. So either characterizing ourselves or characterizing others. And so I think what the text is saying, what is it you're looking at? How can you appreciate others? How can you appreciate the good in yourself and in others? Then I wanted to look at a sutta you might be familiar with. I don't know about that. And it's the Sangharavo Sutta, which is a sutra on the hindrances, I could say the sutra on the obstacle. And what's interesting in this sutta 
is that basically the Buddha is looking at obstacle, hindrances we might encounter. And my feeling, what I like about some of these suttas is that there is wonderful example. The Buddha takes kind of like uh, examples, simile, which are really, uh, I think, inspiring. And possibly today, the first day of a retreat, possibly you encountered some of these obstacles. And then he gave a, a little of a simile for what is it, what does it feel like when I'm caught by this obstacle? So the first one is grasping. Like when you have contact through the senses and you grasp at things. And it says, it's like if you had a bowl of water and it was colored with a dye, like red blue, green, and then if you try to see your reflection in the water, it would not come totally accurate. It would not really totally represent yourself. And that's what, as you practice today, you might have noticed. I mean, you are at Gaia House, you're not anywhere else, at least in body you're here, but possibly in mind, you were all over the place. You know, and actually... You were maybe, I don't know, 10 years and so you were five years ago, or you were two days ago, or you might have been all over. You could be all over in time, and you could all over geographically. And that often we kind of move like this, very fast. We grasp at this memory, we grasp at this thought. And then... What is interesting to see that generally our identity is colored by that. So we cannot see generally ourselves clearly because we're in a way covered, colored by the memory, colored by this, colored by that. And just to see that, to see suddenly it's like you're a little colored and then you come back to being here, to being in the experience. And sometimes it really feels different. It's like you go somewhere else and then you come back. Then you have another thing. I hope you did not experience it, but it's ill will. It's kind of a little anger. And he compares this to a bowl of water which is heated on fire. And then it will be boiling and bubbling. And because of that, your reflection again won't be able to be there to reflect properly because it will be all broken up. <laughs> and so sometimes, you see, uh, you come here and you want to cultivate wisdom and compassion and suddenly you catch, you grasp at something from long ago or recently and you get so upset and even re re revenge revengeful. And so you sit in meditation plotting revenge the best way I'm going to get that person, which possibly is not very compassionate. And so in a way, to, to see when is it, like I'm sitting here and I feel quite peaceful, compassionate, and then suddenly I get caught by a thought that gives rise to some emotion, and then you know, I become this angry person. But actually, right here, nothing is going on. So it's interesting how quickly things kind of, in a way, move us, change us. And then you have another one, agitation, worry. Sometimes uh, when you come the first day on a retreat, especially if it's a new place, you kind of keep looking at the schedule every two minutes. Am I really getting, you know, is it really, am I remembering this correctly? Do I really know where I am, what I have to do next? And there is a little worry, a little agitation. And the example is like if it was a bowl of water which is ruffled by the wind. So in a way the water cannot settle. So just to be aware of that, that suddenly, oh, I am worried about this. Do I need to be worried about that? I'm a little agitated by that. Do I need to be agitated by that. So just to kind of notice that. Then you have one you might have experienced today. And this is 
sloth and torpor. So I don't know, I mean, myself, I had it a little bit. When I was doing the guided meditation, suddenly it was like, oops. <laughs> then after that, I, I managed to keep away. Before that, I was really like, poof. Uh, and he says, uh, the comparison is that if you have a bowl of water and it's covered by moss and covered by water plant, and then you cannot even see the water anymore. So we might have felt a little like that today. And just to be aware of it, generally it's a little lethargic, a little sluggish. And then you have the last one, is doubt, wavering. And sometime on the, on the first day of the retreat, you're sitting in meditation and you think, why did I come on this retreat? Why am I doing this? You know, do I really need to do this? When is the next train? How can I get out? And he said it's like the ball. is kind of you shaking the ball, and then you put it in a dark place. And then you, can't, you really can't see very clearly. And so what I think is important to see is that it doesn't mean that we should not experience this. But I think what is important is actually to be aware of it. To be aware, oh, I'm a little lethargic, sleepy. Oh, I seem to be agitated. Oh, I seem to be a little getting, you know, because somebody seems to have looked at you a certain way and you kind of go into this whole story when actually they were not looking at you. You know, you're just noticing what is it in a way that will cover, ruffle, bubble, the way we experience ourselves. So I think during the retreat, we often are going to experience, even briefly, this. And then it comes. I think what we have to be is not identify with them. That's me. I will always be like this. But again, to see how these states come and go. I think that's very important to see that. They come and they go. We are not those states. We are not the obstacle. They just happen because of different conditions, different circumstances. Then I wanted to look a little at meditation. And in a way, what is meditation about? What is mindfulness about? Exploring this a little. And here the Buddha is an, an image. And the image is that you have a fortress who has many gates. And then you have the gatekeepers, and then you have messengers. And he says a fortress stands for this body composed of four elements, born of mother and father, nourished with rice and barley gruel. You see, I wear a porridge this morning. The Buddha did too. Subject to constant rubbing and abrasion, to breaking and falling apart. The six gates stand for the six senses. The gatekeeper stands for mindfulness. And the swift pair of messenger stand for tranquility, samatha, and insight, vipassana. And so in a way, what we're doing during this retreat is cultivating mindfulness and at the same time using these two elements, the element of concentration, the element of insight, of inquiry. And the Buddha really often in the text, he will say, You have the case of an individual who has attained internal tranquility of awareness, but not insight into phenomena through heightened discernment. And then there is a case of the individual who has attained both internal tranquility of awareness and insight into phenomena through heightened discernment. Again, he will say, 
You have some people who develop insight preceded by tranquility, tranquility preceded by insight, tranquility in tandem with insight. So basically, you have these two qualities, and you could say a third one, qualities, capacity. So you have samatha and you have vipassana. What I think is very important with the three, and then you have sati, mindfulness, is that each, in a way, represent cultivation, something we can cultivate, but also something that is developed through the cultivation. So you could say you have the cultivation of something and the effect of that cultivation. So if you take concentration, samatha. So samatha we could translate as concentration, unification of mind, stability. And at the same time, if we cultivate that, it helps us to be more stable, to become more calm, to be more unified. So that, in a way, we have the cultivation of it, then you have the effect of it. And then often, we don't know, are we talking about the cultivation, are we talking about the effect? And if we focus too much on the effect, you're sitting there thinking, I, I'm cultivating concentration, I'm cultivating calm, I must be calm, but I am not calm. Why am I not calm? I must be calm. When actually I think what is more important is to see that we cultivate something which over time will develop calmness. But it does not mean that immediately there is, there is calmness. But at the same time, the more we cultivate it, the more it happens. There is no doubt about it. So then we have to look at this concentration. What does it mean to concentrate when we meditate? Because I think often there is this idea about concentration that we're trying to become like uh, tomato concentrate. You, know? you have this little tube and it's kind of concentrated tomato. And so we're becoming concentrated, you know, uh, meditator, and then we squeeze out calm. But possibly it doesn't work like the tomato paste. And so I think it might be more useful to think of concentration as anchoring. That actually, you see, the problem with the term concentration is that we often associate it with tension. Concentrate means to tense up, to narrow. And we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to tense around the sound. We're not trying to narrow around the breath. So, but we're trying to anchor. We're trying to be like an anchor. Really like a boat, which has an anchor, which can move, but doesn't go too far and doesn't get lost. And so that's why the, the breath, the sound, the body, I'll bring different things, tomorrow, loving kindness, these are anchoring methods. And why anchoring? Because generally we are dispersed. We go a lot in lots of different places. And actually often we are, I would say, too concentrated when we become obsessed with something, when you cannot stop thinking about something, when you kind of continue to think about just one thing and you can't think about anything else. That's concentration. But that's not meditative concentration. So we're not trying to become obsessed, nor are we trying to tense. We are trying to anchor. And the way we anchor, and that's what you can notice in practical experience, is that, let's say you try to be aware of the sound, or you try to be aware of the breath, or the body. And you go away. You think of something else, let's say. And then you come back. Notice when you come back, you come back to the whole experience. When actually when you grasp at a thought or at a feeling, at a sensation, at a problem, you generally reduce the field. Like it's like you're not here anymore. You could be sitting here and actually you could be totally, totally somewhere else. And it's something that happens sometimes. You talk with somebody, so... You look in the right direction, but you're not focusing. So you're not listening. 
So you don't hear. You think about shopping list or whatever. And then they say, what do you think? And you have no idea what they said. No idea. So what we're trying to do with the focusing, with the anchoring, is to be more in the fullness of the experience, the multi-perspectival thing, instead of being locked in one thing. And so every time we come back to the breath, we don't just come back to the breath. We come back to the whole experience. We come back to the sound. We come back to the whole experience. And another thing which happens with the coming back is the fact that then we are not feeding the thought. We're not feeding the mental habits. We're dissolving its power and then the thinking can go back to its creative functioning. So if you want to plan, you can plan, but not plan repetitively. Just plan because you need to, and then you can let it go. And that's why we become calm with the concentration, because we are not feeding all this emotional, mental, physical, etc. habit. We are bringing them back to their creative functioning. And then that gives us lots of space. I mean, I don't know, but possibly today you might have noticed that you did not have many original thoughts. Although you had lots of thoughts. I'm fairly sure you had lots of thoughts. But did you have a lot of thoughts you have never thought before? Possibly not. So this is a question, do I need to continue thinking exactly the same thing all the time? I mean, so this is in a way the concentration is helping us to take a little holiday from that, in a way, compulsion to kind of follow the electricity in the brain. And that's why we become more calm, because there is less kind of agitation. But it doesn't mean we stop thinking. We can think if we want to think. Well, we can not think if we don't need to. So that's why we have more space, more freedom, more calm. Then there is another aspect, and the other aspect is vipassana. And vipassana can be translated, often is translated as insight. So often people say, I'm doing insight meditation which then you assume you need to have insight if you're doing insight meditation. And then, you know, you're waiting, you know, where are the insights, you know? I did not have my, you know, insight today. <laughs> so, so insight is actually the effect of the vipassana. Vipassana basically means looking deeply. V is an intensifier. Passana means to see. So to look deeply. So you could also say experiential inquiry. So we're trying to go inside the experience. And it's not very complicated. This is not philosophy. This is not complicated. It's just being in the experience and being intimate with the fact that things change. That's one of the things. And we could start there and look, later talk more about other things we can be intimate with. But that things change. And it's strange. We know things change intellectually. But, I mean, to me at the moment, I keep having this really weird experience. And it's like, it's hot at Gaia House. You know? <laughs> I have not been hot at Gaia House in the summer for the last 10 years. So it is a big change for me. It's like, it's hard. I'm keeping thinking. Hmm, I, I enjoy it. I have nothing against it. But I'm surprised, thinking like, I had this idea, like, England can never be hot. It's wet. And then right at the moment, I'm really challenged in my kind of permanence of wetness in England. You know, and I'm experiencing. So it's changing my experience. And now I'm kind of, we'll have more, ex not expectation, but... Oh, yeah, it can be hot in England. Instead of it's never hot in England. And it's very interesting. Experientially, it makes a difference. So it's kind of like that, kind of being in tune. 
with the fact that things change. They don't change every second or every minute, but they can change. And so in a way, when we sit in meditation, we can either be aware that what we put in the focus, in the anchor, the breath, the sound, the body, the sensation are changing, or so noticing what change in the foreground, or we can notice what change in the background. And in the background, you might have experienced that thought, feeling, sensation, and sounds change. They rise, they pass away. But you see, if we grasp at them, then they actually last longer. That's what is interesting. And so the creative engagement is about, oh, yes. And to me, this is one of the questions I would hope you would take from this retreat in terms of being in daily life. From the vipassana aspect of the meditation is that when you experience something, the first question you ask is, how long is it going to last? especially if it's an emotion in the body or a sensation, how long is it going to last? Instead of, it's going to last forever. At least it's going to last for a week. Oh, it's terrible. It's always like this. So the vipassana, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry is really, in a way, trying to be more, again, intimate, in tune with the fact that things change. And then I think they can be, in a way, more the famous flow that somebody was trying to use the word. You know, there is more flowing with condition, flowing with circumstances, instead of battling with them. And so I would say that the concentration and the inquiry one helps us to develop calmness, stability. The other helps us to develop clarity and openness. And then together, we develop what I would call creative awareness, creative mindfulness. So what we're trying to do is not staring at reality, but actually becoming aware in a creative manner. So we're not in the position of being in the balls and actually be kind of quite things being more opaque than they need to be. But in a way, seeing clearly in the balls, what is a condition, what is a reflection, what is going on? So in a way, that's what we're trying to do. When we sit in meditation, we're trying to cultivate the two together. But of course, when we're doing that, we also use sati, S-A-T-I. And sati nowadays is translated as mindfulness. But also, sati can also be translated as awareness. And so that's what I'd like to do today now, to talk about mindfulness, awareness, what is this, uh, what does the text say about it. And there is a question about it on the board, and I hope that through this, the question also will be answered. So, first, it's very important to see that sati is sama sati. So it's appropriate, authentic, mindfulness, awareness. And the first thing which is important to notice with sati is that it has ethical discernment. So it's not, it doesn't just mean to be conscious of something. It means to be conscious, to be aware, to be mindful, but within an ethical framework. This is very important. And in terms of the ethical framework for the Buddha, again and again he says about harmlessness, really to, so that we don't cause harm to others, but we also help the welfare of others. 
So that's really kind of one of the main points of it, as Stephen was talking about in the discussion. Another thing you could see in Sati is wholesome stability. That it really, and I think this is the sitting, but also the walking, what we're trying to do is like building something within ourselves, which is actually very experiential in the body of stability. And I know you might have sat today and you might have had lots of thought, been a bit sleepy, pain in the legs, and you might have thought, this is not working. But actually, I would say, all the sitting and walking meditation you've done today, all the mindfulness you cultivated today, through the day, has helped you to develop this wholesome stability. And so it's kind of not like a refuge within ourselves. That if something happened, we still feel, you know, the turmoil or whatever happened, but there is something within us where we can find a refuge. Maybe in the belly, maybe in the stance, in the feet, in the body, but it's somewhere where we can go to and feel that actually whatever is in turmoil, there can be a wider stable environment around it. And to me, coming on a retreat is a lot about developing that. Developing that stability, that wholesome stability, which then we can take in our daily life. And then we feel a little less agitated. It doesn't mean we don't feel agitated, but it means we can come back to the middle. We can come back to stability more quickly. I live uh, with my mother, lived downstairs, I live upstairs, and I never know what's going to happen. You know, the other day I had a friend and I was doing something else, writing something, and, you know, three times in the morning I have, she has a little bell, so she rings, and I kind of open the door, what's the matter? You know, and I never know what's going to be. It could be as innocuous as, where is uh, the basket for the washing? And then I can just point out, it's right there because she's forgotten where it is, because she's losing her memory. Or it can be that, you know, she's decided she has uh, two kilos too much. She needs something to cut her appetite, and then I have to, for ten minutes, really work on her to forget about the idea. <laughs> so I never know. So, but the thing is, you have the bell rich ring, and I think, okay, let's go and see what's happening now, and not be agitated beforehand or be agitated during it. And sometimes more stress than others, and then sometimes I, I can see, ooh, I'm going a little this way, that way, then I try to come back to stability. So I think this stability, I think this awesome stability, is very much what we develop in the practice. But you also have an exploratory probing quality, and a little like, what is going on? How long is it going to last? So it's kind of really also, you're not just observing something. You know it creatively engaging with something. So other thing that's said about this um, satin is that it's not wobbly. So it helps you not to float away. Because we can be, one of the things we might notice, we can easily... I mean, as we sit in meditation, suddenly something pops in your mind and whoops, you easily float away. Here, there, or we get a little wobbly. And it's really helping us not to be, again, not to float so much. And that's, I think, come also from the concentration, from this unification. Absence of confusion. You see, the more clearly aware we are about what's going on, the less we will be confused about what's going on. So that's why I'm talking about coming back to the whole experience is so that we see the whole picture. Because often when you worry about something, when we worry about something, it's like we only see two, two things about it. 
instead of seeing the whole picture, when suddenly you decide, I'm stupid, or I'm hopeless, or this is like that, or I cannot stand it. It's like you, suddenly you really make the thing very small. And here is to kind of see more clearly the different aspect. And then I think we feel less stuck. There is more creative potential, more creative possibility. One definition is facing, engaging an object in experience. So, I think this is what we're going to try to do during the week in terms of the meditation, is when you look at something, when you experience something, are you really, in a way, experiencing it the closest to its manifestation, or are you experiencing it through the commenting and the association? You see, we are meaning-making machines. We are associative machine, commenting machine. And of course there is good reason for that. But I think we do this very fast. So we often we relate to the commenting or we relate to the associative history instead of what is really going on now. What are the conditions now? Not the conditions three months ago, not this commenting, going here or there, but what is really happening here? And so it's kind of, again, to, to, to be more in the experience. But experience meaning body, mind, and heart, and the environment. Because often we can really get stuck, either in a feeling, or either in a sensation, either in a thought. And here we're trying to, to be in the whole of it. Another one is enhanced presence of mind. So again, it's kind of like we, we don't have this reduced focus, but we, our presence of mind. To me, this is one of the great joy of actually doing the meditation practice, is actually to see how over time I became more compassionate. And one of the reasons to becoming more compassionate was that I started to see the other as much as myself. Instead of just seeing myself, my interest, etc. But to see as much the other. Seeing really their existence for themselves. And not just for my sake. And to me this is one of the beauties of this enhanced presence of mind that is not just to our inner stuff, but actually as much to what is outside, to see others, to see nature, to see the world, but really where it manifests, how it manifests, instead of our reduce, kind of like, I would say, of course, we cannot but perceive through our own brain, etc. But I think through the meditation, it can be like there is more space for others, for the world. And of course, also, an heightened attention. So that attention is greater. And we can stay attentive for longer. This is, I mean, this to me is very interesting in conversation. Or if you're watching a talk, like you are doing right now, how attentive are you? This is a question. How long can you stay attentive? When somebody speaks, when you're watching something. And we can see, that's very interesting to look at, to notice, am I staying like, you know, a few minutes at a time, or am I going off every 10 seconds? And I think this is an art to pay attention in a way which is stable and open at the same time, so that you're really attentive. And being attentive means being present, really being there for yourself, for others. 
So it's really being attentive instead of going here, going there. It's full attention. Like you're really there. And I think this is in a way you could nearly say the magic of mindfulness. That sometimes you, like you're going to go walking in nature. And notice, you walk in nature and then suddenly you realize you're thinking of the office. And you're not sitting, seeing the beautiful flowers or whatever it might be. And then you leave the office and you come back to being here and look at the flower. And then the flower, the color is brighter. And it's not magic. It's just you have dissolved the shield of abstraction, of being somewhere else. So it's heightened attention. I don't think it's, it's heightened only so far that the, you, you dissolve something. So it's always potentially there. It's not like a magical attention. Then there was two um, simile about sati, about mindfulness, awareness, that I wanted to share with you. The first one was already slightly mentioned, is a simile of the gatekeeper. That the gatekeeper, that the mindfulness, is like a gatekeeper. It protects you from danger. So it's kind of looking at. In mindfulness, it's kind of, in a way, the, the Buddha is basically saying things are conditional. Things come upon condition. And so he's saying, why not cultivate the conditions that are more likely to make you wise and compassionate and not harmful? And so the sati as a gatekeeper is a little, I mean, do I want to continue to think this thought? Like if you have one of these vengeful scenarios, I mean, do you want to continue to build up aggression towards somebody or not? Or if you really kind of are judging yourself, really kind of giving yourself a hard time, do you want to cultivate that? Or do you want to cultivate loving kindness toward yourself? So it's not repression. It's not saying I must not have this thought. Like it's not that the thought is sinful or terrible, but it's more looking that it's not helpful. It's not going to help toward myself or toward others. So in a way, it's kind of like looking at what is it I'm thinking? What is it I'm feeling? How am I relating? And in a way, questioning it. But in a meditative, stable open way. Then the gatekeeper also receives important message. So there is a part of the mindfulness which is bright, which is insightful. So the mindfulness, that's a vipassana aspect, you can see things you've never seen before. And to me, this is what is interesting. You know, it's kind of like the story of suddenly the, the fish looking for water and suddenly realizing, I have been in water all the time. And I think the mindfulness is not going to reveal some magical real, but it's going to make us see ourselves and others much more clearly. And then so that we really know what we're working with. And to me, this was the first thing after I had barely meditated for six months, sitting in meditation in Korea. That's when I realized, even doing a very different practice, an awareness practice, I had the same effect. I became aware, very clearly aware. And I really kind of saw the message that, hey, that's what I think. That's how I think. And possibly it's not always helpful. And it was very revealing because I'd never seen it like that before. And because there is clarity, but kindness at the same time, you're not upset. You just say, okay, that's what I have to work with. And then 
the last one is deliver in efficient way. The gatekeeper, deliver in efficient way. And so the mindfulness, if you see things more clearly, I think it really can help in terms of the way you are with yourself, the way you communicate with others, the way you are more creative because there are less things in the way. And in a way there can be a certain, I would say, wise spontaneity, which in a way trusting ourselves, trusting in our mindfulness in a way. And then the last simile is the one of the plowman. So the Buddha says, sati is like a plowman, somebody plowing a field with a cow. And the first one is a clarity of direction. That actually the plowman, if he goes like this, is not going to get a good uh, field. So in a way, the sati, mindfulness, awareness, is going to help us to have more direction, to be more clear. Again, it's back to clarity, to have a sense of direction, which I think is so important. And then the plowman must apply a balanced pressure. If he push too much, he gets tired. If it's too high, he's not going to do much. And so we must have a balanced. The sati must be balanced. And I think one is something I really, you must be careful about with sati, with mindfulness, with awareness, is that we don't do it in such a way that we become more self-conscious. This is not about becoming self-conscious. Really not. It's more about being aware in a wide wide open way so that actually the sense of self dissolves and finds a better, more appropriate place. We'll talk more about this later in the week, about the self and the not-self. But I think the balance is so important that we, that we don't use mindfulness to beat up a swift. I am not mindful. I'm not compassionate. I must be like this. I must be like that. Or to make us more self-conscious. Or I must do this slowly. Then I'll be more conscious. No need, no need. So in a way, it's kind of how can we relax? It's a relaxed awareness, relaxed mindfulness. And the last one is actually with the plowman, is that the plowman actually by plowing the field, revealed by digging. So that the mindfulness, again, will help us to reveal things, to see things more clearly. And from that, we can more creatively engage with our life. So, that's what I wanted to say this after, this evening. Are there any questions or comments? And first, could everybody hear me clearly? Okay. Yeah? Oh, I think, you know, I'm sure that uh, if you look through the text, you get, you know, five hindrances, ten obstacles, this, that, and another. I think it's just kind of, if you look at the text, he kind of like, there is also somewhere else he come up with another things of other obstacles, and there are different ones, actually. Exactly. So I think, in a way, I presented uh, what you could say five classical hindrances. But I think then it's very personal. What kind of obstacle do we have, do we experience due to various conditions? And so, of course, expectation. I think to see the difference between what I would call aspiration and expectation. I think aspiration is very important. You did not come here because you had nothing better to do. 
And if only you had thought of it earlier, you would have gone on a golf tournament or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know. So you came here because you had an aspiration, aspiration of wisdom, compassion, stability, openness, awakening, whatever it might be. So aspiration is very important because it gives us energy. But expectation is saying, I want this type of compassion, that type of calm. I read about this, why am I not experiencing it? Or my friend experiences, why am I not experiencing it? Or two retreats ago, I had this amazing experience, why am I not experiencing it? So I think expectation limits us. But it's very natural. And so to me, one way to, to work with that is to notice when we are actually cultivating the meditation and when we move to looking at the effect. And then generally, if you move into effect, then very quickly you move into expectation. And then to, to see that when we check the effect, we're actually not cultivating, we're checking. So of course, I think at the end of the retreat, you can check and say, well, was it useful or not? Totally, I think it's a good idea. But every two minutes to check, is this working? <laughs> Am I more calm, clear, or whatever? That, I think, is a little too quick. So I think it's kind of just for us to notice when is it that we just cultivate and when do we move to the checking effect? And then gently to see back to the cultivation. I think it's just not fighting the expectation but more coming back gently to the aspiration, to the cultivation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.